Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 11. We've been studying the last three verses, Matthew 11, 28, 29, and 30, and we're going to continue that. We'll be reading there in just a moment. The title of this series, and this is the third part of this series, is More to Life. And if you're the kind of person that has wondered if there is more to life, this particular study has been directed at your heart. And may God bless you and encourage you. The title of this morning's message is The Gift of Rest. The Gift of Rest. And we're looking at the third phrase in uh, that first verse of Matthew eleven twenty-eight. And again, we'll read that in just a moment. You know, one of the, the great lies of the enemy is that you can do life without God. And, and the lie plays itself out sort of in this way, that I can get up in the morning and I don't even need to recognize that there is a God. Now, some of you have trouble recognizing anything when you get up in the morning. I understand that. But, but you, don't, you don't recognize Him at all. There's no, there's no prayer. There's no initial greeting of the Lord. Uh, there are times I get up. I don't do it when Gail's watching because it's just weird. It just feels weird. But when she's not, I'll get up in the morning. I'll just say, praise the Lord. I'll just raise my hands to Him, just praise the Lord and just greet Him as I start the day. Not a quiet time, not even a prayer time, just praise the Lord. Because that orients everything from the rest of that moment forward, for the, 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 that, that day. And so you and I get up, and, and a Christian can do this, a non-Christian certainly does this, and we just go on and do life without him. And so we go, we get dressed, we go to work, we go to school, things happen, discussions are made, decisions are made, and our minds, we're not even, not even thinking about where the Lord is in this. And, and uh, then we make decisions. And most of the decisions that we make, we might, we might say that we prayed about it, but we actually, we make the decision. And we don't, we don't yield those decisions to the Lord. And, and I can go, and at age 20 or at age 30 or 40, Wherever I am in life, there are all of these predetermined things that you're just supposed to do. That if you're graduating high school, the next thing you're supposed to do is. And everybody pretty much knows what that is. If you're coming out of uh, a college or a trade school, you're supposed to do the next thing. When uh, you get in your 20s, everybody expects you to get married. And, and, and they're all at each stage. And you get to a certain age, you're supposed to have grandchildren. And, and there's just this progression. And, and all the while, you're interacting with life, you're kind of doing life, but you're doing it without any real con contact or connection or communion with God. And why are you doing it? You know, the irony of living that way is we work and we work and we work. Why? So that we can get some, to some place, some imaginary place where we can rest. T-G-I-F. You know, the weekend or that vacation. Or we come to a place where we finally can retire and we have the re retirement that we wanted, and which is becoming more and more of a pipe dream for more and more people. Certainly my generation and younger. I mean, it just becomes more and more challenging to think in those terms. And, and all I can think of when I, when I look at that, I, I've got people that I went to school with, high school with. I know one fellow in particular. He, re he retired three years ago. We're the same age. I'm thinking, this is just insane. 
Because at what point do you kind of wake up from the treadmill, and that, that's what comes to mind is like a hamster who gets in the wheel and he starts running. And, um, and he thinks he's getting somewhere, but he's not. And, and it feels that way in most of our culture that we get on the treadmill of whatever we're supposed to be at whatever stage of life that we're in and we make our decisions, we call the shots and we, we run and we run and we run and we run, but why? Why? And where are we going? And what are we accomplishing? And listen, if you're a Christian right now this morning trying to do life without God, you get up, you don't pray, you don't think about him. The only time you ever really deal with God at all is when you come to church on Sunday. And, and if you truly are a Christian, you've been born again, you are, you are in trouble because the Holy Spirit in you, God is on a mission to change you into the likeness of his son. And he has a mission for you, and he has a plan for you, and he has a, a will for you. And if you're blowing him off, he's not going to let you do that forever. I'm here to tell you this morning that, that our God is willing to sacrifice your happiness, your success, your comfort, sometimes even your health, to bring you to a place where you will finally listen to him. The, the theological description of that is remedial or corrective judgment in the Bible. And there's all kinds of examples of it in Scripture where God allows things to happen. Now, that doesn't mean every problem you have is God punishing you or correcting you in some way. I'm not suggesting that. But I will say this. Every problem you have is God speaking to you. Every problem you have is an opportunity for you to turn to God and hear what he has to say about your problem. Every problem you have. And so you and I were not made, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, doesn't matter who you are, you were not made to live without him. And so in the face of, of that choice to live that way, what does Jesus say? He says, come to me, you who are weary, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. What is this rest that he offers? What is it? How do you get out of this hamster wheel of driving and driving and driving and being driven and being driven by others? Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, verse 30, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the phrase we're going to focus on today is that third phrase in verse 28. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, not your body, but your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His offer to you is this, it's rest. What is this gift of rest? First, the rest is an internal revolution. The rest is nothing short of an internal revolution revolution. Two weeks ago, I explained that one of the first things you and I have got to see about this passage is that Jesus is inviting us to an entirely different kind of life. He is not saying, let me come in and prop you up because you have it so hard. He, he doesn't say that. Come to me and I will prop you up. 
He says, no, come to me and I will give you rest. Something entirely different. It's a totally different way of life. He's saying you're, you're laboring, you're heavy laden. The word labor or weary that's used there is describing the kind of work that leads to exhaustion. And he's not referring to physical labor. He's referring to an attitude of the soul, your mind and your emotions, that there's a way of living that is a driving approach to life, and it comes from the soul, where I think I am responsible for me. I'm responsible for my family. I'm responsible to take care of everything that there is. I'm responsible to obey God. I'm responsible to do everything He says. I'm responsible to to please these people in my life. I'm responsible for my own success and whatever I become in life. It's all on me. He says, I can give you rest for that. And then others of us are heavy laden. And the word's passive, meaning it's something that's put on you by someone else. And we saw when we studied that, that that refers to, the, uh, in context, it refers to the heavy load of religious rituals and requirements and man-made uh, stuff that the Pharisees had come up with, and they put on people and said, if you're going to be a good person in the sight of God, you've got to do all this stuff. Jesus said, when you're laboring under the expectations of men, when you're laboring under your own expectations, when you're laboring under the expectations of your society or your family or some treasured person in your past who put a bunch of stuff on you and caused you to always feel like you fell short, if you're a person who is heavy laden, Jesus says, I will give you rest. And so what the rest is, is an internal revolution of the soul. It is a totally different approach to life. You may still work hard physically. People who have rest in their soul may run circles around the rest of us. Why? Because they have the favor of God. They have the power of God. They're simply being obedient to the plan of God. And he fills them. He enables them. Those that wait upon the Lord, the Bible says, people that wait on him, who offer him praise, who depend on him, who look to him, they're the ones who mount up with wings as eagles. They're the ones who run and they don't grow weary. They're the ones who experience the presence and power of God. In Nehemiah, he says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Probably one of the most misunderstood scriptures in the Bible. Because it's not our joy. It's not our joy in him. It's his joy in us. The favor of the Lord is our strength. And so when you're being obedient to him and doing what he says and the favor of God rests on you, you're going to run circles around the rest of us. And you're going to have an energy and a life and a vitality, a reason for living life with meaning. It's an internal revolution that he offers when he says, I will give you rest. As this word appears in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's several nuances that I want to share with you that I think that, that bring this out. The first most basic idea of rest is the idea of ceasing from labor or cessation from labor. The ancient uh, meaning of this word actually was an agricultural term. You farmers appreciate this. It, it, it referred to what you did with a piece of land when you did nothing with that piece of land. When, when you kept planting the same thing over and over again and it gradually produced smaller and smaller yields because the soil never got any rest. And so when they rested the land, that's where this concept of rest came from. You just, you ceased from making the land work and you gave it rest. 
Another picture that's here is the idea of disruption or interruption, um, where you're, you're doing one kind of thing in life and you're approaching life a certain way, and then it's totally interrupted so that you can't do it that way anymore. That's a picture of rest. Another one is the idea of refreshing or being recreated or changed. And probably the most powerful picture of this is, is the idea of, of cessation from war or battle when your enemies can no longer get to you and you're able to catch your breath in the midst of the battle. And, and that word, rest, is used in that context. Rest from all the enemies. That's what Solomon got when God was working through him. And you say, well, you don't understand, Don. I've got bills to pay. I have mouths to feed. I have responsibilities. I have all kinds of stuff that I've got to deal with. And you're telling me that I'm going to experience rest. Yes. You know, Psalm 23, we read it at funerals and stuff, but if you go deep enough in that psalm, one of the amazing statements is there, that's there is he says, in, you prepare a table before me, he says, in the presence of my enemies. So get that, that picture in your mind. Your enemies are surrounding you, no, knives are drawn, tongues are wagging, whatever your enemies are doing to you. And you're surrounded by all that. And he says, in the midst of the most threatening, hostile environment, he said, I'm going to create a space where you can be with me. And it's like sitting down at a banquet table with stuff to drink and things to eat. And your heart is refreshed while your enemies are out there dying. That's the picture of rest that Jesus offers you and me. It's not cessation necessarily from a busy life or responsibilities or taking care of business. It's, it's removal of the responsibility to get everything done off of your shoulders and you're putting it where it belongs on Jesus Christ. And you become a person who simply is devoted to him and follows him in simple devotion and obedience. It takes the load off. And so rest, if, first and foremost, is an internal revolution. And the only way I can experience it, according to verse 28, he says, is come to me. There's no way you're going to find this rest by doing a Bible study on your own, uh, memorizing a bunch of scriptures. Um, those things will certainly help. Uh, being a good Bible student, reading the Bible through 10 times a year, you know, all the things that you think you have to do to grow in Christ, be a Christian, those things certainly help. But the bottom line here is Jesus says, you've got to come to me. You've got to encounter me as a person, as a living being in your life. Come. To me. The second thing that rest is, is not just an internal revolution, but it's also a promise. Come to me and I will give you rest. It's a promise that's described here. And, and, and the word I there in the English is actually a personal pronoun that's put there. And, and in the Greek language, when that happens, it's putting emphasis on who is doing it. And so if I was going to stress it, he says, come to me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He was saying, I, myself, and only me will give you rest. He's emphasizing that. And when he says, we'll give you rest, literally it means he will cause you to rest. You come to him, and he will bring you to this place. He's going to do it. He's going to accomplish it in your life so that you experience this soul rest. And then it's a promise, and the whole nature of a promise when someone promises you something is that there's nothing you can do to fulfill the promise. It's all on the other person. I can't make this happen. I just come to him. He says, I'll take care 
of, your, of the rest. It's a promise. Now, now, I want you to just pause for a moment. I want you to think about the promises of God in Scripture. You know, there are promises in God's Word that if my people, he says, will do certain things, if they'll come to me, then I'll do these things. And right now, I don't know about you, but as I look around our nation, our country, our community, I don't see the activity of God associated with the promises of God. Do you? I mean, if you're being intellectually honest, do you see what the Bible says we ought to see? And, and there has to be a point at which you and I get dissatisfied with things as they are. We have to become a weary and heavy-laden people almost. We have to realize that whatever we're doing as believers, it ain't cutting it. And that what you and I have to do is come to him and take that promise and say, Lord, based on the promise that you have given, that if I come to you, you will give me rest. I'm coming to you based on that promise. One of the most amazing things in Scripture was what happened after the incident with Cain and Abel. You remember Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. And the essence of that sin was thinking that I know better than God what's best for me. God said, you can eat of any tree of the garden but one, but somehow they reached the conclusion through the temptation and the lie of the devil that God's holding out on me. I got all these other trees, but still there's one, there's one. And, and he doesn't want me to be smart. He doesn't want me to know good and evil. And, and they, they thought, I know better than God. I can think for myself. I can handle life on my own. I don't need anyone else telling me what to do. I don't need some God telling me what to do. I can make my own choices. Essence of sin. And Adam and Eve sinned. They were driven out of the garden. You remember they had two sons, Cain and Abel. You remember how that turned out. And then what's amazing is they had another son named Seth. And Seth had a son named Enosh or Enos. And we read about, we read about him in um, Genesis 4, 26. End of Genesis 4. Just listen. As for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And what's interesting about the name Enosh is, is in Hebrew it just means man. But the root of that word means frail or sickly. It's an interesting way of thinking about who we are in the Hebrew mind, frail and sickly. And when he named him Enosh, frail, sickly, it says, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. The most amazing discovery in human history was not fire. It was the discovery that God is not just a creator in the heavens who made everything and just sits there and sort of watches what's going on. The most amazing discovery in the history of human life, human existence, is that I can call on him and there's a God who hears me and a God who responds when I cry out to him. And, and that sense of need is what fueled that. And without that, you're just going to keep riding the hamster wheel. But if that need is real in your heart, and you sense that what you're doing is not working, and you're not satisfied, 
and you want to see things change, not just in your life, but in your church and in your community and in your nation, and you are burdened by that, and, and that is fueling you. Don't go charge hell with a water pistol. Come to me, he says. Come to me. Come to me. Let me fill your life. Let me guide you. Let me speak to you. Let me be in charge. Come to me. I will give you rest. Life gets really simple really fast. It's a promise. The third thing that rest is, is it's not only an internal revolution, it's not only a promise, but thirdly, the rest is Jesus. He is our rest. You say, well, how does he cause rest to happen? Well, obviously, we have a role to play. If you read verse 29, we're going to get into that next time. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There is something we do to enter into this relationship, to enter into this new life. We're going to talk about that. But look, it's really simple. The way to rest is simple. He is our rest. He is our rest. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, I think this passage illustrates as clearly as any what I'm trying to say. And it's up on the screen. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. You know, if I was going to rewrite that just, just to make it easier to understand. Um, but in Christ you are of him. That's, that's really the, what it's saying. In Christ you are of him. But I have to read it funny for you to understand it. But of him you are in Christ. Now, the word him is not referring to Christ, is it? He's saying that when you're in Christ, you are of him. Who's the him? God the Father. Of him you are in Christ. So, what's he trying to say? He's saying something very basic that you need to understand as a Christian. That the way a person becomes a Christian is that they recognize their sinfulness and their lostness without God. And that if they died like that, they would spend eternity without Him. They realize that they have sinned. And they need a Savior. And so they hear about the cross, and on the cross, Jesus dies for our sins. I can't die for my sins. I'd go to hell. Jesus died for me. He suffered my hell in a finite period of time. An infinity in a finite period of time. And the person who recognizes that Jesus is our Savior and comes to him and puts their trust in him, says, Lord, I can't save myself. I am putting my trust on you to save me. He saves them. Now, what doesn't happen there, and this is a mistake that we tend to make, is that when I give God trust, when I give him faith, and what he does is he gives me salvation. And it's like a, I give him something, he gives me something. I give him faith, he gives me a package called salvation. He doesn't give you a package. He gives you a person. He unites you with Christ. He makes you one with him. Your spirit literally merges with the spirit of God, and you are reborn in your spirit. You have an eternal life inside you. And from the core of your being, your spirit, which alone can commune with God through your spirit, being united with the Spirit of Jesus, He begins to change you from the inside out. Your mind begins to change. Your, your decisions begin to change. Your emotions begin to change. And so when Christ and you are united as a Christian, when Jesus lives in you through His Holy Spirit, everything that is true of Jesus 
and about Jesus in relationship to the Father and sin and death becomes true and available to you. So what does Paul say? But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us. I couldn't do this stuff. He became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What does that mean? Rest. Jesus becomes my rest from my inner drive for these things. You say, what do I mean? Well, first, Jesus is my rest from my inner drive to know. Some of us are driven because we need to know stuff. I need to have answers. I need to learn. I need, I need to learn. I need to know stuff. I need to know what I'm supposed to do here. I need to know what I'm supposed to do there. And we can either take the world's preset group of answers or I can turn to God. And he says that you can rest from your need to know. Why? Because Jesus is our wisdom. If I have Jesus in me, I have everything that I need to know available to me. Everything. What I need to know, he will tell me. I can rest. I can rest for my inner drive to be right. You know, if a person is driven by a sense of inadequacy and a need to feel right, they're, they're going to argue with you all the time. They're always going to try to win every argument you ever have with them. When someone has to be right all the time, they may become very judgmental of others because in that way they kind of elevate themselves and they put others down. When a person has to be right all the time, they're really, they're really not fun to be around. But you know, I don't have to be right if Jesus is my righteousness, do I? Everything that I need to please a holy God already exists in Jesus. He is my righteousness. He, I can't add anything to the goodness of Jesus. I already have it. I already have it. He is my righteousness. I'm set free. I can rest. I can rest from my inner drive to belong. To belong. He says that Jesus is our sanctification. The essence of the word sanctify or to make something holy is to set it apart from everything else and set it apart for a specific use. In the Old Testament, if if you had knives and things you used for sacrifices and you set them apart for God, you were sanctifying those things and making them holy, set apart for God. And when a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you. What does that mean? It means that you are involved in a process, whether you fully understand it or not, of increasingly being more and more and more fully in a state of belonging to God. In other words, you stop when you first saved, you're just all, you know, I belong to me and myself and I. And then as you grow in Christ, increasingly you start giving everything to him. And pretty soon more and more and more of me belongs to him. Sanctification is the process where more and more I'm surrendered to him, I belong to him, and I'm available for his use in whatever way he wants to use me. That is the greatest sense of belonging available to a human heart. Some of us go through life trying to belong to groups that don't accept us, belong to spouses that don't accept us. We try to earn a sense of belonging by even in our, in our church activity. I want to belong so bad. And you can watch some, you, we see it in little kids and we hurt for them when they're trying to be part of the group and nobody will accept them. Adults do that. You know what? When I understand that he is my sanctification, 
I belong to him. I belong to the Father. I belong to God. I, am, I can rest from having to belong to everything else. I've said this before, but it's really liberating when you can walk into a room full of people. It really doesn't matter what they think about you. Because you know the Lord. And if he's pleased with you, that's all that matters. Paul said, if I was still trying to be a pleaser of men, I could not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And when you belong to him, it sets you free. You can rest. The last one is, he, he gives us rest from my inner drive to be free. Some of us are, this manifests in different ways, but you know, when you're a kid, you want to be free of your parents' house and rules. Nobody ever did that here, I'm sure. Moms, none of your kids ever did that. But you want to be free. I want to be free. I want to make my own decisions. And then later on, you, um, you may struggle with a problem in your life, and you want to be free of that addiction or that sin habit, and you want to be free, and you're doing everything you know to do. You're joining the church. You're getting baptized. You're going to Sunday school. You're doing everything you know to do. You're reading Scripture, and, and you're, you're pushing, and you're driving to be free. Or you feel guilt, and you're driven by guilt, and you're trying to compensate because of all this guilt that you feel, and you're trying to be free of guilt. Meanwhile, Jesus is our redemption. And the word redeem simply means to set something free by the payment of a price. If I was a slave and someone redeemed me, they paid a price for me to my old master, and it set me free. And the truth about you is that you're no longer, Paul says, a slave to sin, for example. You are free. You say, well, I still struggle with temptation. I still mess up. Yes, but the truth about you is that you're free. He has set you free. Jesus is your redemption. And you learn to walk in that as you grow in Christ. You learn to walk as a free person, a person who belongs, a person who doesn't have to be right all the time, a person who knows because Jesus is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. He gives you rest. Christ's life living through you far more than the imitation of Christ. It is the life, the very life of Christ being lived through you. I read a statistic this week that says that the average American home accumulates 40 pounds of dust in a year. 40 pounds of dust. If you have children, I think that number gets exponential. 40 pounds of dust. And uh, to help, you know, an average home, when you're going to deal with that, you have air filters and stuff. You have, um, you wipe counter surfaces. And you have widgets like a vacuum cleaner to get that dust up. But, you know, some of us are like a woman. I'm going to pick on a woman. I, I, and I'm thinking of this woman. She's very close to me. It's not Gail. Who, who used to have little gold specks in the the surface of her kitchen counter and she has literally wiped them off over the years you know anybody like that just clean 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 just wipe the little gold dots off of the counter 
they, it happens. Now, what if, what if you and I are living that way? We're trying to drive, everything depends on me, everything counts on me. You know what it would be like to live that way if we're using the analogy of dust in a home? 40 pounds of dust a year, it would be like this. It'd be like, oh, here's some dust. Here's a speck of dust, and I pick it up, and then I put it into the vacuum cleaner. Oh, here's another speck of dust. I'll go over here and pick it up, and I put it in the vacuum cleaner. You know, you know how long that would take? You know that job would never get done? You know that would be very much impossible to live that way? But you know that's exactly the way you're living if you are not living with the life of Christ in you. You are, you are driving and you are operating under a, under a yoke that we're going to talk about next week that he wants to take off of you. And what you need, I'm not going to liken Jesus to a vacuum cleaner, <laughs> but you need the way of life that, that he offers you that makes it so much different and so much better, just like a woman with a vacuum instead of a woman trying to pick up all the dust and put it in the vacuum. Some of us are Christians. We got Jesus in us. We're like a lady with the vacuum cleaner, but we don't, we don't know how to live the life that's available to us. And so we keep trying to operate knowing that it's supposed to be a clean life. It's supposed to be lived a certain way, and we keep picking up the dust and putting it in the vacuum cleaner, and it's never the way that we're supposed to live as believers. And so this morning, we're going to have a time of response. You may just need to bow your head and say, Lord Jesus, I think I'm coming to a place where I realize that I have really misunderstood how you want me to live. I thought it was about putting my trust in you and then trying to be a good person the rest of my life. And I had no clue that what you really wanted to do was come and live your life inside me. And you wanted me to rest in that. And as a first step this morning, you may just want to bow your head. Do you need to do this? And just say, Lord, I'm coming. I'm coming to you. I'm that guy. I'm that woman. I am weary. I've been driving and pushing my whole life. And Lord, the weight of expectations, the load that I'm carrying, it's crushing me. And so Lord, whatever it means to come to you, you promised to give me rest. Here I am. I'm coming. I'm coming to you. If for the first time in your life you're realizing that Jesus died for your sin and that there is a whole new life of forgiveness and freedom that is offered to you in Christ. I shared about the cross and how Jesus died on the cross. This morning, do you need to trust him? Do you need to come and just lay your life out to him and say, Lord, I'm giving you my life. I need your forgiveness for my sins. I have messed up, and all I see is a future of continuing to mess up. And so, Lord, here I am. I am trusting you to save and rescue me. There'll be pastors standing here at the end of the aisle. They're not here to intimidate you. They're here to help you and bless you. And they have scriptures. And if you have questions, they'll, they'll look it up, and you can read it for yourself. Please, you don't want to take our word for it. You can read God's word for yourself and see that, that it's true. Maybe you just need someone to come pray with you. You're, you're, you're being crushed. You're hurting. And he wants to set you free. How will you respond to him? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who is present here this morning. Father, we really do commit this time 
into your hands. We release it to you. You, you are sufficient to meet the needs of every human heart here that's crying out to you. And so, Lord, I pray for that man or woman who wants to be free. I pray this morning they would take the first step of putting their trust in you, Savior and Lord. Or if they're already a Christian and they realize they've been living the Christian life in a way that's just absurd, and they see that now, and they're ready now to come and surrender to you and let you live your life through them, I pray for that man that he would open his heart wide, that his, his mind would be filled with the truth of what your word says, and that they, he would experience what it is to come to you and to receive rest in the soul, that she would experience that. Giving up trying to fix everything and take care of everything and, and to be a success and to be good, just to give all that up and to come to you. Father, we have nowhere else to turn. Set the captives free, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.